It's one of the deepest, richest, most important books of the Bible, Romans. In this message, join Pastor Chris Chadwick and learn more about what the Bible says in the book of Romans. Growing up as the youngest of three children, our house was always filled with what would probably be called childhood conflicts. My mom would call it fighting, but that's how our house, what our house was always filled with. It's nothing really bad, I guess I should say, just um, the fact that someone was always trying to establish superiority over the other one. I have an older brother who's five years older than me and an older sister who works with us here, but she's eight years older than me. And in truth, most of the fighting was between she and my brother or my brother and me. Seems like he was at the center of all the family problems and not much has changed. Now, if you're a guest at Canyon Ridge, if you laugh better, the message is shorter. I have no problem preaching for hours on end. Ask my children. I can do it. So uh, if you're a guest here, we're just going to have a good time. But my, my, and if you say, well, I didn't think the jokes were funny. Well, then I'm just going to be offended and keep working at it. So it'll be shorter the more that you laugh. But it was not uncommon for my brother or sister to do something or say something, and I would respond or they would respond. And my mom would come into the room. Uh, whenever that was happening, and she would begin her Columbo-like investigation, uh, and it didn't take too long. My brother, she would ask my older brother, Tim, what happened? And he would lie, no doubt about it. He would lie. That's just what my brother is. And you say, your brother, he's, how much older is he than you? Five years. So he's still in his 50s, and he's still that way when we're around our mom. Just never told an honest word around our mom, always trying to get me in trouble. Story of his whole life. That's the reason for his existence. And he would tell my mom a lie, and, and I'm sure it was that way. He might differ, but I'm sure it was that way. And then my mom would come to me and she'd say, Christopher, what happened? And I would speak truth. <laughs> no doubt about it. And uh, I would say something. And, and let's just pretend for a moment, because you'll have to, that I was totally in the right. My mom would look at me, and this was one of her favorite sayings, one of her favorite sayings. She would look at me and she would say this. Christopher, two wrongs don't make a right. And I said, well, two lefts do, but then that didn't go anywhere. And so two wrongs don't make a right. And I heard that phrase my entire life. Two wrongs don't make a right. They wronged you, they wronged you. Your response doesn't make it right. That was the story of kind of my upbringing. Well, I began to think about a title for today's message and the passage that we'll be studying, Romans chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, and I began to just kind of work through it, and the guy who plays the guitar, John Scheifus, is, uh, works with us, and, and he's creative. The other guys in the office aren't creative. <laughs> and no, I'm kidding, they are, um, some of them, and, um, and I... I contacted John and said, man, I'm struggling to come up with a title for today's message. And John came up with titles and they were better than mine by far, but neither of us really liked the title. And then I started thinking, this text is really kind of talking about this concept of two wrongs don't make a right. And so I titled today's message, their wrongs don't make you right. Their wrongs don't make you right. Romans chapter two, verse number one, the scripture says, therefore, 
you have your Bibles, read along with me. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things. Now, if you're new to our study in the book of Romans, let me just give you a little bit of background. The book of Romans was written in mid to the late A.D. 50s mid to late A.D. 50s. The Apostle Paul had been a preacher of the gospel somewhere around 22 to 23 years by the time that he writes this. The Roman Emperor Claudius was um, not a friend of the Jews. As a matter of fact, he expelled all of the men who were draftable in age, Jewish men who were draftable in age. He expelled them and most of their families left and because they weren't there to protect most of the older folks left. But he expelled them from Rome around AD 49 and they were out of the city for some time. Luke chapter 18, or not Luke, but Luke reports this in the book of Acts where Luke wrote the book of Acts as well. And in 18.2, that Priscilla and Aquila, two lay folks in the church who were just phenomenal believers and tremendous encouragers to the apostle Paul. Luke reports that Priscilla and Aquila, when this happened in Rome, that they ended up in Corinth along with other Jews who had been expelled. Well, by the time that Paul writes this in the mid to the late AD 50s, some maybe six or seven years after the expulsion, most of the Jews had come back to Rome and they were um, living back in the city of maybe their upbringing, their birth, whatever the case may be, they were living in Rome. Well, pastor, what does that have to do with anything? Well, you have to remember that the church in Rome was started by people who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And they had heard the gospel preached by Peter and they had gotten saved. And then they went back to Rome and they brought the gospel back to Rome and they began to do what every believer should do who cares about the lost condition of men around them and the eternal souls of mankind. They began to share their faith with folks around them. They didn't bottle up their faith. They shared their faith with anybody who would listen. And Jew and Gentile alike in the city of Rome began to get saved. People began to turn their hearts over to the Lord, understanding that they are sinners and their sin will send them to an eternity in hell separated from God. But the glorious message of the cross that we just sang about that Jesus Christ died on, if they would realize they're a sinner, turn from their sin and accept the free gift of salvation that is offered by Jesus Christ, that they would be saved. And that was the message they took back to Rome. And by the way, that's the message we bring here to San Diego that if you're a sinner in need of a savior, Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation for all mankind. There is no other means of salvation for mankind. That message has not changed for 2,000 years. Sometimes people in their arrogance say things like this to me, like, why do you Christians keep preaching the same thing? Well, because it's the same glorious message. You're a sinner in need of a savior. Jesus died for you. And if you'll trust him, he promises to give you eternal life. And he loved you enough to die for you. Well, they go back to Rome and they preach that. Gentile and Jew get saved. The Jews have to leave in the expulsion. And the Gentiles, the church, well, from the context of the passage, the church begins to flourish in the city of Rome under Gentile leadership. And then the Jews come back and they come into the church. And the church is, for lack of a better phrase, basically there is a maybe not an emotional or relational division, but there's two people or two groups of people with very, very distinct cultures. 
A lot of times churches want to call out and they want to say, hey, we're a multicultural church. And what they really mean by that is they're a church that is multicolored. Like our church, we have people from different nations, different tribes, different parts of the world. We love it. We love the, all of the difference. We are all one in Christ. Praise his holy name. It doesn't matter what part of the world you're from. It doesn't matter the amount of, of melanin in your skin. We are all one in Christ. We have unity. Multicultural, though, is where you view the world very differently. I went to Louisiana in March, had a great time in Louisiana. But can I be very honest with you? That's a different culture. I was there and I had no idea what was going on three quarters of the time. Matter of fact, there were people talking. I had to have an interpreter with me. I'm like, what is, what is she saying? And they're like, oh, she's saying that, you know, her dad has a, has a V8 Ford truck with straight pipes and they go mudding on the weekends. I said, oh, I thought she said she was hungry. Oh, wonderful. And they just view the world very differently. So culture and color, I just want to be very clear, are two very distinct things. Well, the church in Rome was, was very very distinct in their culture. You had people who had grown up in pagan Roman Gentile culture that viewed the world from a very pagan position or paradigm. That's what they had grown up in. That's the people to whom Paul is speaking in Romans chapter one, verse number 18, all the way to verse number 32. These are people, if you look at it, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven in 118 against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of, of him from the creation of the world are clearly th- seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his or God's eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse. By the way, so are you and so am I. We are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was dark, and professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man or an idol, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women to change the natural use into that which is against nature, and the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly. We dealt with all this last week, receiving in themselves a recompense of the error which was meet. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge, and gave God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient." Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Who, change, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which do such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. These are the, these are the hedonistic Gentiles to whom Paul is speaking 
So the church is made up of these hedonistic Gentiles and these religious Jews, these unrestrained Gentiles that did whatever their heart desired and these restrictive Jews, these indulgent Gentiles and these these orthodox Jews. I mean, there's almost a dividing line. Now, the Gentiles have been saved out of that and and they they were obviously striving to walk with God, but that was their culture. That was their upbringing. And the Jews, man, they, they didn't, they weren't that way at all. You see, in Jewish culture, homosexuality was regarded as an abomination. One commentator said this, no feature of pagan society filled the Jew with greater loathing than the toleration or the admiration, as was in Rome, of homosexual practices. They, they were loathed by that. They hated that more than they hated anything else. Anything else. Fourteen of the 15 Roman emperors were homosexual. The society was filled with homosexuals. The, the, the men of the city would use women only as a means of procreation, but all of their lust was fulfilled with men. I mean, it was, that was the city of Rome. It was pagan for sure. And so many ethically upright, hearty, moral people that were in the church, primarily Jews, but maybe even some moralistic Gentiles were hearing Paul's letter in the first 18 verses, 18 to 32. And, and, and they're, they're, man, they're almost, you know, they're excited. They're, they're thankful. They're feeling a sense of pride in themselves. If, if they were Southern Jews, they were running the aisles, standing on chairs and yelling amen. If they were Northern Jews, they were contemplatively nodding their heads and going, hmm, <laughs> like you just did. F.F. Bruce points out the Roman philosopher Seneca, a contemporary of Paul, who's a very moral man, might have listened to Paul's indictment, says Bruce, and said, yes, that is perfectly true. Great message of mankind. I concur with the judgment which you, Paul, pass on mankind. But those are others. But there are others, of course, like myself, Paul, who despise and deplore the tendencies as much as you do. Paul imagined someone intervening in terms like these, and Paul addressed these Suppose objectors, how apt his reply would have been to Seneca. Seneca uh, could write so effectively of the good life that, that and, and good morals and good character that Christians would later refer to Seneca as our own Seneca. Not only did he exalt great moral values, he exposed hypocrisy. He preached that equality of all, the equality of all mankind. He acknowledged the pervasive character of evil. He practiced and inculcated daily examination. He ridiculed vulgar idolatry. He assumed the role of a moral guide. He was a moral man, but. Too often he tolerated in himself vices not so different from those that he condemned in others. The most significant and most flagrant instance being his connivance at Nero's murder of Nero's mother. He was fine with that. See, most Jews in Paul's day believed in the idea that performing certain moral and religious works produced righteousness. 
Specifically, they felt like they could earn Paul's favor. And so in Romans chapter, or God's favor, in Romans chapter one, as Paul is writing, the, the hedonist, the pagan, the person who is indulgent in practicing whatever their hearts desire, the person who has abandoned God, as Paul writes them, they stand proverbially and listen or sit and listen and there's a sense of smugness about themselves. We are not them. Before we get too far into this line of thinking, I think it's important that we look into our text. Verse number one we see the meaninglessness of the moralist. The meaninglessness of the moralist. No doubt there are people here today under the sound of my voice that you view yourself as totally fine and okay because you're a moral person. You don't cheat on your wife, you pay your taxes, you serve your country, you're kind to people, you... Don't honk at people who go slow in the left lane on the freeway. I'm on a one-man agenda to get that changed in the hearts of mankind. The left lane is for passing, not cruising. I was hoping we'd have more support. I gotta preach harder on that. I'm gonna find that. It'll be in like 3 Timothy or Hezekiah or something eventually, but... If you're new to church, there is no third Timothy or Hezekiah in the Bible, but we'll write it and it'll say, thou shalt not cruise in the left lane. Um, that's all that it will say, by the way. It'll be a short book of the Bible. Um, the meaninglessness of the moralist. Now, now you got to keep in mind, this, this is the way that this book was written or this is the way this book was received. They didn't have phones and apps or even Bibles and printing, Paul wrote this letter and it was delivered to the church at Rome while Paul was in Corinth. And they would have called the assembly together and people would have come in and they would have have assumed their normal seats or wherever it is that they would sit and somebody would stand up and they would read the letter in its entirety. And so chapter one is being read. I mean, I need you to envision and have have a creative mind for just a second. Envision that all of the Gentiles who grew up in Rome or in the Roman community or culture in some other part of the world maybe, but they're living in Rome and they've been saved. And as they hear Paul's writing in Romans chapter one against all of this sin that they're feeling very, very, if you will, maybe burdened about the sin of their past and the practices of their past. And we talked about this last week and so we won't re-preach it, but if you can imagine, you know, when the pastor preaches or you hear somebody preach and they talk about something that maybe you struggled with in the past, though you still have victory today, there's still a sense of foreboding or regret that goes on in your life because of what went on in years gone by. I mean, come on, I'm not alone, am I? I mean, they're, they're feeling that in their own heart and life. And so these these Gentiles are feeling bad, but the Jews never practiced that. So as Paul is writing this letter, and Paul is the one with apostolic authority, he's the primary evangelist and and pastor, teacher, preacher, missionary of the day, uh, basically in that part of the world. And so as Paul is writing this letter, these, these former pagans were feeling tremendous regret. Their spirit was burdened inside of them. But the Jews, on the other hand, they were feeling a sense of pride and arrogance. Like, dude, Dude, we'd never done that. We knew that was wrong. We preached that was wrong. We don't let our children do that. We are way better than them. And that's what's going on as Paul is, as that letter is being read. But then we come to chapter two. 
And we see the first word, therefore. Because of what I've said earlier in verses 18 to 32, though the Bible wasn't written with chapters and verses, he still is referencing back for our edification, verse number 18. Therefore, thou art inexcusable. Inexcusable without defense. Without excuse. No justification. Thou art inexcusable, O man. He's referring to these Jews within the church who were setting themselves up as the standard, not the scripture, or their culture and not Christ, or their upbringing and not a biblical worldview. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Whosoever thou art that judgest. Judgest. To judge to form and express a judgment or an opinion of any person or thing. The judgment is normally unfavorable. It means to criticize, to find fault, to condemn. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art or whoever, whichever one of you it is that is judging. Note that any person becomes a moralist when he sets himself up as the judge of others. Anytime we judge the other, another person, we are declaring that we are living by the same rule that the other person is not living by and are more, we are more moral than someone else. We are better than someone else. We are superior to others. We are more righteous than others and that we are more acceptable to God than somebody else. Judging says this, I am right and he is not. I succeed, but he fails. Look at me, ignore him. Draw near to me, shun him. Esteem me, put him down. Approve me, condemn him. Be my friend, withdraw from him. Very simply, judging raises ourself and lowers others. It exalts self and debases others. And in the eyes of God, it is wrong. It is sin. It is full of self-righteousness and pride and arrogance. And it sets us up as a moralist and it makes a person judgmental and critical. I love pastoring. Matter of fact, it keeps me awake at night in a good way, except that I don't sleep, which is bad. But I love pastoring. I love to get up and get into the office and come in. I love working with our pastoral staff. Matter of fact, I I do it for free, but I, I, I can't. But I love it. I love to work here. I love you. I love praying for you. I love having fun with you. I, I enjoy it. But can I tell you one of the most difficult parts of the job is dealing with judgmental, critical people who know nothing of the word of God. And we have had people, and sometimes people are just critical. They have to find, like their value is finding something to complain about. Like they have no value in life if they're not complaining about something. Oh, it's too hot. Oh, it's too cold. No, the seats are too far apart. Oh, the seats are too far together. Pastor, your sermons are way too long, which my wife would agree with. Pastor, your sermons are way too short, which no one's ever said but me. I mean, just, just critical. I didn't like the fact that you wore a tie on Sunday, which hasn't been said forever. 
I don't like the fact that you don't wear a tie. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like this. I don't like that. You, all you're marking is that you're a critical individual. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 1, the Bible is very clear. Judge not that you be not judged. Romans chapter 14, verse number 4, who art thou to judge another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Who, why, are you, why are you complaining about somebody else? I've seen people in this room go to expensive restaurants and complain the whole time about the service. And then go to McDonald's and complain about the service there. Who art thou that judgest another? Why are you judging another man's servant? You don't have to go back there, but why are you judging? Why are you condemning? That's what the word means. Romans 14, 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. If you want to judge, judge this. Make sure that you're not putting any stumbling blocks in the way of your brother or sister in the Lord's progression of Christ-likeness. Don't do anything that prevents them from growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Do what you do to help edify them and build them up. If you want to judge, judge that. By the way, the internet is filled with judgmental people. Sometimes I go online to websites that some of you guys like to look at and I'll, and I'll just read and I'm like, dude, number one, it's not biblical. And number two, it's just filled with judgmentalism to make the author who's probably in a parent's basement somewhere and hasn't seen the light of day since 1948. He's just drinking Mountain Dew. He's literally filled with, with sugar and formaldehyde, but for some reason, dude can still type. And he's just sitting on there finding every reason in the world that he can to judge people. And we've got people in, in churches going, oh man, that guy is discerning. No, dude's a punk. Welcome to Canyon Ridge. James chapter four, verse number 12 says, there's one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judges another? Well, notice our verse. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. Condemnest. Means to pronounce a sentence against. It's like this. You've seen court cases, or you watched Perry Mason or Law and Order. And they have the trial, and, and the trial happens, and then it goes to the jury, and the jury finds the defendant guilty. And when the defendant is found guilty, the judge says, okay, jury, I thank you for your service. You may be dismissed. The jury leaves, and then he looks at the, the uh, uh, district attorney or the, the assistant district attorney, and he looks at the, plaint or the defendant's attorney, and he says, we will meet back in my courtroom on such and such a date for sentencing. And you come back on said date and you stand before the judge and get done with all the preliminaries and the judge sentences the person to probation for three years or to five concurrent life sentences or whatever the case may be. The word sentence is the word condemn. Who are you that condemns? Who are you that sentences this person? Wherefore, when thou judgest another, you sentence yourself. You condemn yourself. For thou that judgest does the same thing. You who make yourself judge, 
you who form a critical opinion of someone, you are doing the exact same things. Maybe not in practice, but in heart. The story, I believe the Old Testament is written for our learning. The Bible says in Romans 15, 4, that we through patience and comfort of the scripture might have hope. It's given so that we will understand all that God has for us. And 2 Samuel chapter 12 is an account where there's this great old prophet in the Old Testament. His name is Nathan. He's one of my favorite prophets because, number one, he had full access to the king, but he didn't care about the king's position or the king's power. He was going to speak truth to the king no matter what. And he wasn't a punk about it. He wasn't unkind about it. He loved the king, so he wanted to speak truth to the king. Well, Nathan comes into King David one time, and they were friends, and Nathan says to King David, David, I, I, I need to talk to you about something. And David says, okay, Nathan, what is it? Come on in. And so Nathan walks into the room, and he says, David, in a distant city here in our country, there's a poor man. And his family, they've got one little ewe lamb, ewe's just a girl lamb, and, and they've got this one little female lamb, and they love her. She's a pet to them. She's not livestock to them. She is a pet to them. She loves them, she, or they love her, they care for her, they minister to her, they help her, they encourage, they, 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 they pet her, she eats from their table, she drinks from the master's cup. I mean, she loves them. Matter of fact, she's more like a daughter to them. She's raised with the, the man's children. She sleeps in their bed. She's just a pet. When they go outside, she goes outside. They, they love this little ewe lamb. The children of the man love him. The, the, the man and his wife love him. They're not raising her for her wool. They're not raising her for her meat. They just love the lamb. And it's the only one they have. They're very poor. And in my mind, I can see Nathan going, David, remember when you were a kid in Bethlehem? Remember when you were watching your father's sheep, but you had that one special little lamb that would always stay with you and would comfort you when the other sheep would be out there eating and he was sitting by your side or standing by your side and you'd reach down and pet it and that lamb just loved you and cared for you and you'd take it inside the house and, and you'd keep that lamb with you and you never were going to slaughter that lamb. It wasn't raised to be sold to the slaughter. It was raised just to be your pet and you loved that lamb. I think David's mind thought back to Bethlehem and those fond days out in the pasture lands in the cool of the evening when all the other lambs are out there eating and there's young King David and his little lamb and they're talking to one another and they're having fun with each other and I don't think you can play fetch with a lamb but whatever you do with them, they were doing it. And David said, yeah, Nathan, I know that feeling. I miss those days. And Nathan said, well, that's not the whole story, David. That's not the whole account. Part of the account goes on to, to tell the story that there's a rich man as well in the city. And, and in the city, this rich man, he has many flocks and he has many herds and, and he has tons of sheep, thousands of sheep, it would seem. And, and he's got flocks and herds of sheep and goats and lambs and camels and, and, and cattle. And man, these sheep are everywhere. And, and this man has all kinds of flocks, herds, and sheeps. And sheeps, sheep. And the rich man one day, David, had a traveler come. And traveler's just a friend, David, and he comes from a distant city and he comes to see the king or see the rich man and the rich man is there with his traveler and part of the custom is when a traveler would come to your area, you would feed him. 
So David, the rich man, has this traveler come and he's got thousands of sheep and he's got goats and he's got cattle and, and he gets his pick from all of the herds and he looks out over his herds and he sees all of his herds, but he, he doesn't want to take anything from his herd and he knows about the poor man down the way. And so he goes down to the poor man and when the man's not looking, the rich man steals the poor man's little ewe lamb and runs back to his house and slaughters the little lamb and feeds the lamb to his friend. By this point, David is furious. He did what? Oh yeah, David, can you believe it? Oh, I can't believe it, not for a second. He has thousands of sheep and goat and cattle and all he can do is go take this little lamb from this poor family? Yeah, can you believe it? No, not in my country, not my people. We wouldn't do that. No, David, what are we gonna do? Second Samuel chapter 12, verse number five, this is what David said. The scripture says, David's anger was kindled greatly against the man and said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David felt vindicated. David felt righteous. But David was wrong. David the king, a man with way too many wives, more than one's too much. More than one's way too much. My dad always says, more than one wife, more than one mother-in-law, and that's a cross no man should bear. I don't know that that's a true statement or not, but I would agree with that. I love my mother-in-law, but... One is enough. David, a man with a harem of wives and a harem of concubines. And in truth, he could go to any woman that he wanted to, basically in the country who was unmarried, and make her his wife. Not trying to get into it, but that's just really kind of how the culture was in the day. Well, there was a time when the nation of Israel was out to war and all of the men of war and most of David's advisors were out to war and it's in the evening and it's warm in the day and in the cool of the evening, David leaves his castle and he walks up over his castle and he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he looks to the area where women would bathe at night and they would bathe there at night for modesty and so that people wouldn't see them. And David probably, we believe, had the only place in the entire city where you could see into that woman's bathing area and David, in his in his perversion went and and looked into that pool and he saw a beautiful young woman there and he told his servants go get her for me and find out who she is and so they go and get her and they come back to him and they say it's the wife of Uriah the Hittite Uriah was one of David's most most treasured warriors he was a a man of great renown in the in the armies of Israel. He was a, he was a very decorated fighter. He was a man who, who would, who would defend David literally to the death. And, and she was related to Ahithophel, David's chief counselor. So no doubt David knew who she was. And they said, oh, she's Uriah the Hittite. He says these words, bring her to me. 
and they bring her in the room and he commits adultery with her that night. And to make a long story short, later when Uriah, he impregnates her that night and her husband Uriah is brought out of the field and brought home to have relations with his wife, but he won't have that because he says, I can't go into my wife while my brethren are in the field. He was a man of upstanding character. Ultimately, David has him killed. He murders a man with whom he had committed adultery with his wife. You do the very same thing. Here's what Paul is saying to the Jews in the church at Rome. You're full of yourself. You're full of yourself because you you think God is pleased with you. But you're in this text. You may not practice homosexuality, but you practice the same thing. The point of this text is, yeah, okay, you're not indulging in the the physical sin that is mentioned that we dealt with last week and a couple weeks before that. You're You're not engaged in that, but understand this, you Jewish men and you moralistic men, that when you condemn them, you condemn yourself for you're doing the same things. It's really easy for Christians to be judgmental, isn't it? It's really easy for us to watch the news and go, I'm thankful I'm not like that. Oh, oh. How can God allow this to go on in our world? Boy, that's really easy for us to look at sinners and say that. Now, I have to mention this because it's in the text. That this does not mean that the judicial system of the state or the federal government is wrong. Nor that discipline is not to be exercised within families. I mean, if, if you go home and tell your kids, like, hey, clean your room, young people don't respond to your parents and say, who are thou that judgest another? <laughs> I'll tell you what my mom would have done. Anyway, I'll deal with that later. Discipline has to happen in churches. Discipline has to happen in organizations. You, you can't miss 30 days of work and then when your boss fires, you go, why are you so judgy? We're not supposed to abandon biblical discernment or biblical judgment. I want to be very careful here. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 7, first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. This is the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind. No sermon will ever be better than this. You say, why do you say that? Well, because Jesus preached it. He says this, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged, and with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. With the judgment that you judge, you will be judged. 
Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly, and cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. It's not unbiblical or unchristlike to discern with biblical judgment that something or someone is wrong. But understand, you will be held to the same standard. That's what verse 2 says. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. Now listen, I, I wouldn't want a person convicted of embezzlement being my accountant. I mean, think about it for a second. If a dude is really good at hiding money, I don't want him dealing with my money. I wouldn't want a car thief to be my tow truck driver. Like, dude's really good at stealing cars. I'll take your car, I'll get it off your hands. Yeah, you'll get off my hands permanently. I wouldn't want that. I hope you wouldn't. Judgment and discernment are biblical requirements. And the Bible teaches that justice and discipline are to be exercised by men. But here's the deal. Here's what God says. Don't hold someone to a standard that you're not willing to keep yourself. And don't hold someone to a standard that is unbiblical in nature. What the Bible means here fundamentally is that we're not to go around criticizing and finding fault with each other and putting each other down when they fail. Instead, we're to reach out and redeem and help one another. Imagine what a difference our world would be if all tongues stopped gossiping, even in this room. Christians are really good at gossiping under the auspices of prayer request. I have a prayer request for you. I hate her. If all criticism and fault finding ceased, if everyone actually reached out to redeem and save those who failed, and I don't mean salvific salvation, but to help those who failed to get on the right way. I mean, it's what Romans 14.1 is talking about. Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not with doubtful disputations. He's weak, receive him, help him out. Romans 15, 1, we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Galatians chapter 6, verse number 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Who are you that judgest another? Who are you that tells them they're wrong when it's not biblical? Who are you that are judging them when you're doing the exact same thing? Now, this would lead to a really problematic conclusion if verse 1 was the entirety of the paragraph. That's why you can't ever take a verse out of context. That's right, the most, the most misrepresented verse in the entire Bible is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not lest you be judged. I've had more people tell me that verse in an effort for their own sensuality and perversion. Like, no matter what you say, oh, judge not lest you be judged. The Bible commands it. Well, that's not really what the Bible is commanding. 
The Bible is commanding an honest form of judgment with biblical integrity and biblical consistency. But the Jews in our text were in heart and mind hedonistic and all they could see was the practices that was happening by those folks in Rome who grew up in a completely different culture with a completely different worldview who their heart actually met, measured or met itself out into a practice. Or let me say it this way. They were sickened by, the Jews were, by the practice of homosexuality and the perversion of sex. But they weren't sickened about thinking about it. They were simply sickened by those who acted on it. Well, the Gentiles acted on it, but the Jews thought about it. And so Paul Paul is saying, your heart, he lines up with Jesus very clearly, that out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh, then God judges the thoughts and intents of the heart, not simply the practices of the hand. And so there's an importance in verse number two, that's why he doesn't leave us with the end in verse number one, but there's an importance in verse number two through verse number five with the importance of divine judgment. What do you mean divine judgment? Well, verse number two, but we are sure that the judgment of God is according to the truth against them which commit such things. The importance of divine judgment. Why is it important that God judges? Because he always judges, it's in the word, the judgment of God is according to truth. Sincerity, veracity, sincere heart and mind, a love of truth. In words and conduct, God always judges according to truth. God never lashes out in human anger. God has never judged based on flawed information. The judgment of God is always according to truth. And God is perfectly just. God's judgment is exactly what it should be. Nothing more, nothing less. His judgment is based on what really happens, what the facts are, what actually has taken place, what a person really is within their heart, and what the person actually did. So at 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God knows the heart. You see, the Jews in our text were very moral people. There were very moral Greeks there as well. They did the right thing. They said the right thing. They acted the right way. They were good folks. Everything on the outside, they were great people. They were moral. Much more than being simply moral, they were moralist. In their mind, their morality was enough to earn them favor with God. I'm a pretty good person. I probably had 15 people tell me that this week. I'm a good person. I had one guy tell me this not too long ago. He goes, I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody ever. That's a pretty low bar. <laughs> but I'm always thankful when people tell me that because if they say the other, which has happened, I'm kind of fearful and I'm on edge. It's hard to witness to somebody when you've got them in a headlock or they have you in a headlock. I'm a pretty good person. Well, this text leads us to some points about the moralist. Verse number two, the moralist thinks he will ex escape judgment even if others don't. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. His offense, the moralist's offense is greater because he thinks that he is better than other men Though his sins and his shortcomings make him short of God's glory, 
He's worse because he criticizes and judges those whose failures are discovered and exposed, and he thinks he will escape. He forgets that God sees the inner recesses of the human heart and that God will judge men not only for their deeds, but for their thoughts. Not only for their deeds, but for their thoughts. He's full of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. 1 John 2.15 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The moralist thinks he will escape even if others don't. The moralist, verses 3 and 4, thinks God is too kind to punish him. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judges them which do such things, and dost the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Paul is saying this rhetorically because that's what they think. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance of his long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? The moralist thinks God's too kind to punish him. When the moralist thinks of God, he thinks of the riches of God's goodness, that he's kind, he's gracious. They think of God's forbearance, his refraining, holding back, abstaining, his controlling of his justice. They think of God's long suffering, that he is suffering long, he is patient, he is slow to judge sin. That's what the moralists think. But God, and God is, of course, all of those things. He is long suffering, he is good, he is forbearing, but that is not a license to sin. It doesn't give us a blank check to sin. It doesn't condone sin. It doesn't allow an indulgence in sin. God does not overlook sin. Verse number four, the end of it. The goodness of God is to lead us to repentance. The goodness of God is not to lead us to indulgence. But the Jews were using this in Paul's day in Rome and Christians in our day, they're using the forbearance or the long suffering or the graciousness or the kindness of God. They were using that and, and people use it today as a reason or a license to sin. Well, I hear this, you hear this. Well, God hasn't done anything yet. I guess he doesn't care. No, you, you don't understand that, that the goodness and the forbearance and the long-suffering of God is to bring you to a place of repentance, not indulgence in sin. The fact that God will forgive sin should stir men to seek forgiveness and to please him. If a man goes out and sins thinking God will just overlook and forgive his sin, he is despising God's goodness. He's taking God's goodness and making it a sham, a mockery, a joke, a thing of indulgence. The man who despises God's goodness, who sins thinking that God will overlook and forgive his sin, is wrong. He is mistaken. As one commentator said, God does not just overlook and forgive his sin. He does not condone, indulge, nor give license to his sin. God will judge him, and the judgment will be according to the truth. The judgment will be according to the truth. Well, I don't think God will care. No, he will. He does. Why? Because he judges according to the truth. It's replete in this passage. Moralist thinks he'll escape even if others don't. The moralist thinks God's too kind to punish him, even though God will punish others. 
the moralist, number three, thinks man is basically good. He thinks man can be good enough to, for God to accept him. He thinks God looks at man and, and will accept man, that man is, is good enough. The moralist thinks that, that God's goodness accepts man's good works or thoughts or behavior or feelings or nature or tendencies as long as they're good. And, and no doubt God is pleased with the goodness of man when man does good things. I won't say goodness, but when man does good things, but what a moralist fails to see is that God's goodness is perfect and God cannot accept, accept any imperfect work, any sinful thought, any evil behavior, any bad feeling, any corrupt nature, any critical spirit, any sinful urges, any lashing out online, any text that would bring offense to someone. God can't accept any of that. any withholding ourselves from service, any keeping back that which is the Lord's. God can't accept any of that. The moralist fails to understand that what the book of James says, if you've offended in one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. If you mess up in one area, you're guilty of the whole law. God only accepts absolute perfection. And no man is perfect. Not in nature, not in thought, not in behavior. Therefore, listen to what I'm about to say. All men are unacceptable to God. No matter how good you think you are. Romans chapter three, verse number 20, one page over. says, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Not by the deeds of the law. No one's justified by that. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 23, for all of sin comes short of the glory of God. The goodness of God is to lead men to repentance, to turn to God for righteousness, not to declare man's righteousness. The fact that God allows men to repent should stir men to confess their imperfections and their self-righteousness to seek God's righteousness, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And finally, this morning in verse number five, the moralist hardens his heart against the judgment of God. He simply refuses to repent. Now you notice in verse number four, the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Don't you understand that? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Treasures up just simply means to store up, to build up. The moralist can't accept the fact that he's not good enough for God to accept. I've probably spent a majority of my time witnessing to folks who actually think that God is pleased with them. Who don't understand that they're sinners in need of a savior. Oh, pastor, I was born into a family. I've been, I went to, uh, my, my parents baptized me. When, I'm just trying to think of the last month. My parents had me baptized when I was a baby. I've done Holy Communion. I've done the sacraments, pastor. I, I'm a pretty good person. God is no doubt pleased with me. And then they say this, oh, I could do better, but it's, I mean, if you knew my neighbors, you would know that God is pleased with me. 
Well, I don't know your neighbors. Well, do you know my brother? Because if you know my brother, you know that God really is pleased with me. I'm almost a saint. The moralist hardens his heart against the judgment of God. And, and God is patient. God is long-suffering. God has given you an aggregate amount of time to repent. And that should lead you to repentance. But it doesn't. Paul talking to the Jews. But the hardness and impenitent heart, the the impenitent, unrepentant or impenetrable heart, a heart that is so callous that it won't listen to the truth. It's just hard and, and, and you can't penetrate it and it's unrepentant in every way and it treasures up unto thyself wrath. The man who hardens his heart and refuses to repent stores up more and more wrath against himself, against the day of judgment. What's the word wrath mean? It's a word we looked at over in verse number 18 of chapter 1. It's the same word, orge, Greek word orge, and it means the settled, determined indignation of God or the judgment of God that is already determined. It's not like you're going to get to the face of the Lord and go, oh, I hope he gives me a break. No, no, there'll be no break. The rule is already set. It's already established in his word. He's already said what the judgment will be. And he's immutable. Part of his character is immutability. And that immutable means he never changes. Listen, God never changes his mind. But after the hardness of the impenitent heart, treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath or judgment against the day of judgment, indignation against the day of indignation and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Righteous judgment means just, fair, impartial, correct. God's judgment is a judgment that should be and will take place. God must judge because God is love. And his love, he must straighten out all the injustices on the earth. He must right the wrongs and correct all the injustices of man. He will judge men with perfect, verse number five, and righteous judgment. A lot of talk about justice movements and social justice movements. And you say, Pastor, how do you feel about them? They concern me greatly. Why? Because the judgment is not established or based on the word of God. It's not established or based on God's judgment. It's one group of people determining to to now hurt people that have hurt them. And then it just becomes cyclical and it becomes worse. And those other group of people will raise up and hurt. And it'll just be more hurt and more pain and more suffering and more hurt and more pain and more suffering until God comes and God ultimately judges all mankind with a righteous judgment. See, here's the big idea of these first five verses. Paul talking to the Jews, the Holy Spirit talking to us. Don't be a hypocrite. You need God's saving grace just like the pagan. Don't be a hypocrite. 
You need God's saving grace just like the pagan. Oh, well, pastor, I'm not, I, I, I'm not homosexual. I've never practiced that. I'm way better. No, 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 dear brother or sister, verse chapter two. Don't be a hypocrite. You need God's saving grace just like the pagan. Well, I, I've never done any of those things. Really? Look at verse number 29. You've never thought about fornication, wickedness, covetousness. You mean to tell me you've never bought anything on credit you can't afford? So what's that have to do with anything? It's called covetousness. Maliciousness, full of envy, murder. Well, Jesus defined what that is. Murder is simply wanting to rid the world of a person. You say, I've never done that. You're an only child. Debate, deceit. You've never been deceitful. You've never been manipulative. You've never told a lie, malignity, whispers, backbiters. You've never, you've never whispered about somebody. You've never said something that shouldn't be said to somebody. You've never backbitten somebody. You've never talked behind their back in a detrimental, hurtful way. You, you've never done that. Oh, oh no, I've never. You haughty and proud, verse number 30 per person. You're a boaster. He said, well, come on. God's not going to do, you know, judge me for that. Well, that's what he said he's going to do. Are you telling me God doesn't mean what he says and doesn't say what he means? Like he's a joker? Like, like it's theological evening at the improv and Jesus is on stage telling jokes, trying to make people laugh? No, absolutely not. What God says is true. It's accurate. It's right. And this is how people will be judged, including me and you. None of us are above it. Bring the CIT back up. Don't be a hypocrite. You need the grace of God just like the pagan. Well, you saying that I'm a pagan in your heart? Yes. Yeah. That's where we all are. And that's really what Paul's going to deal with all the way to chapter 3, verse number 20. He's going to attack the pompacity of the Jews. See, God's goodness, verse number four, should lead you to repentance, and I'm done. Repentance is a change of heart and mind that abandons former thoughts and dispositions and results in a new self, new behavior, regret over former behavior and disposition. Here's the idea. Here's what the gospel is. You ready? Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ left heaven. He's the son of God. He was there at creation. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They created the world with the word of their mouth. And Jesus is there with God before the foundation of the world was ever given. Jesus knew exactly what was, what was going to happen. He left heaven. He comes to earth. He's born of a virgin. He's raised in a little not renowned city of Nazareth at the time. Just a, a hot, rocky city overlooking the valley of Megiddo. That's where Jesus is raised. He's a stonemason, for lack of a better term. That's his career. He's a handyman, a man of his hands. He worked with his hands. And at the age of 30, he lets his ministry be known. He preaches the gospel. He dies for the sin of mankind. He literally hangs on a cross, gives up the ghost. And the Bible says that when he died on the cross, that his blood will wash away all of your sin. Every part of your sin, Jesus' blood will wash it away. Whether it's the homosexual in chapter 1 or the proud, arrogant Jew in chapter 2, it is inconsequential. Jesus' blood can save everyone. And will. 
He says, any that come to me, I will in no wise cast out. So you say, well, pastor, I want to know that I'm saved. I want to know that heaven's my home. I want to know that if I die tonight, that I'm guaranteed to see Jesus. Well, dear friends, you have to understand that you're a sinner. You have to understand that there's nothing that you can ever do to be right with God. You are not good enough. That's what we've been talking about for the last hour. And that's what we'll talk about for the next several weeks as we go through this passage. No one is good enough to merit favor with God. Well, then how do I get saved? By understanding you're a sinner. Understanding that only Jesus Christ can save you. It is only his death, burial, and resurrection that can save you. And it's you putting your faith and trust in Christ alone to save you. Not by your works of righteousness, which you do, but by his mercy that you're saved. Not by works, lest any man should boast. You're saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Not of yourselves. Salvation is a gift. You say, well, how do I know it's a gift for me? You're here, aren't you? It's for you. You're watching, aren't you? It's for you. Salvation is for you. Well, what do I have to do? Realize you're a sinner. Understand Jesus can only save you. Repent of your sin. What do you mean repent? To have a change of mind and heart towards your sin. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. It doesn't mean you have to live a perfect life and never struggle again. But it means to understand that you have sinned against God, that you've been on the broad road that leads to destruction, and you want off that road, and you want on the narrow road that leads to life everlasting. And ask Christ to forgive you and to save you. And he promises that he will. And you're not better than the homeless dude that's building a tower out of mattresses down the street. Or the homosexual who's indulgent in Hillcrest or the drug addict who's wigging out in Linda Vista. No, no, no. We all are in the same condition, for we have all sinned, and we've all come short of God's glory. Don't be a hypocrite. You need the grace of God, just like the pagan does. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.